When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. During this pandemic, we've had masses of numbers coming from the government about how many cases, how many infections there have been. Well, another source has been an app called the Zoe app that actually has more than 4 million people in the UK signed up to it, reporting their symptoms every day. If our data had been used to decide whether to go into a lockdown or not, I think uh, people would have reached a very different conclusion. The founder is Professor Tim Spector of King's College London, and he told us all about it. Hi, Tim. Hello there. So tell us how it works. Basically, you've got tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people signed up to giving their symptoms on a daily basis into your app, and you get a collective picture from that. Well, we've got more than a few thousand, actually. We've got 4.3 million. Uh, people who've downloaded the app and uh, we have over a million people who log on every day and tell us how they're feeling and generally most people would just say okay um, I'm fine and uh, skip to the next day if you say I'm not feeling fine then you have a list of 25 uh, symptoms that may or may not be COVID which people record and then based on that um, uh, response, if they've been well for a, a week or so and they suddenly turn ill, we send them an invite to have a swab test. And uh, those people then can get invited to be swabbed and then we see if uh, how many of those are positive. And that allows us to build up a picture across the country of the rates of change and uh, whether it's going up or down and which regions are particularly involved uh, much faster than any of the other uh, methods around. Uh, so we're really getting our results pretty much in, in real time. So whose data is it then? Is this a government program? I mean, who, who pays for it? Who owns it? Um, it's a good question. Uh, for the first uh, six months, really, it was Zoe that were funding it. Plus, we got some money from the citizen scientists who were using the app. So uh, we started a fundraising campaign because we said, well, 
the government's not funding this, no one's funding it, uh, we think it's very useful. And so uh, actual users, about 70,000 have contributed as well. Um, and then in the summer, finally, uh, after a bit of pressure, the government did agree to uh, start funding it and Department of Health um, now fund it. Uh, although they have been providing these free um, swab tests since about May. In a sense, it was quite a, a beautiful thing for it not to be funded by the government because it enables you to validate and check the numbers that we're getting passed from the government. I mean, do you feel that you're still as free as ever to do that? In terms of the data, we are, we are very free. I'm slightly less free to say exactly what I want <laughs> um, on social media. Um, but that's fair enough uh, because, uh, you know, it is a partnership. Uh, but one of the conditions of the contract was that they wouldn't um, limit the data we showed or uh, they wouldn't uh, stop any publications or anything else. So I think we, we managed to keep our integrity, if you like, to be the source of information that uh, people were looking for that they, they could see as independent and we could have commentaries around the data. I'm presuming uh, you can criticize them still. There's not in the contract that you're not allowed to criticize the government. No, correct. Good, uh, it's, good. It's not. Because um, one of my uh, kind of first questions was gonna be about the data that you published last week or over the course of the last 10 days, which seems to indicate pretty conclusively that total numbers of infections were already coming down last week before lockdown two started. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, that's, that's broadly the conclusion that uh, we, we reached, that um, certainly nationally, uh, it looked like the levels had peaked at the end of uh, October. Um, and when you took the worst affected regions like uh, Northwest and Northeast of England and Scotland, uh, they'd already started to fall. Uh, this was contrasted with those in the South where it wasn't clear exactly what was going on. They were uh, on a plateau or slightly rising. So um, definitely if, if our data had been used to decide whether to go into a lockdown or not, I think uh, people would have reached a very different conclusion. Does that make you think that it was the wrong conclusion? and that we should have seen how things went with the tiered approach before going into a national lockdown? Yeah, my, my personal opinion is that the tiered approach was working, that even in the worst places, uh, it, it was already on the way down before we, we came out of the tiered approach. And if, uh, you know, the government had held its nerve, which was what they wanted to do in the first place, um, before they got these other reports, uh, then uh, we'd be in pretty much the same situation, but without a national lockdown. So we would be seeing the, the fall in cases. And uh, interestingly, even in the tier one uh, areas, we're now seeing a fall off in, in, uh, in cases. So this is, and again, this has to be before the effects of lockdown happen. So there's a, you know, there's both a, a natural phase of the virus. Uh, it comes in waves anyway uh, and affects people, then suddenly runs out of susceptible people to, to in infect. And there's also the, uh, the effects of restrictions. 
and both of these things were in play uh, across the country. So yes, um, but it, it turns out that you know that ours is not the only source of data, and uh, I think the the government uh, advisors uh, took one of the other surveys. There's three surveys in all, uh, and they they took the one from Imperial, the React study. Um, at face value, which suddenly showed this huge uh, increase in cases. Uh, that was uh, about, about a week before, week before our third week of uh, October, which we, we weren't seeing. And the ONS, that's the uh, government official survey, was also not showing. And so that, that made a big difference because suddenly they said, well, the R value is way over two. Uh, and all the experts say the hospitals would be overrun uh, and there'd be, you know, and then unrelated to that, this other model came in saying there'd be 8,000 deaths a day. Hmm. Uh, so it was so 4,000 4, deaths a day, wasn't it, at, at the peak? So this really matters, doesn't it? I mean, it's so important because we've now taken this huge step of once again basically shutting down the country and uh, businesses. Um, how can it be, do you think, that the, the picture we got last Tuesday or Monday, whenever the presentation was, um, where it really felt very grave and, you know, there was a slide showing lots of different models, which was presumably, you know, to show that they were taking advice from lots of different groups, but all of them showed a terrifying surge to come. Uh, and meanwhile, you've got data on the ground that's, even at that stage, I guess, was already showing a slowing. How do you explain that huge gap? Uh, it's difficult to explain. Uh, I think what they were really showing was that, and looking at was really the worst case scenarios. And uh, if you combine the the modeling that was coming out of SPYM with this uh, this the Imperial survey that uh, looks at people every two or three weeks and put them together, you you come up with this worst case scenario of of everything being overrun. And uh, that what they didn't do, I think, was offer the alternate uh, views or perhaps the views of other modelers uh, and the views of other surveys to try and balance it. Um, I don't know what went on in SAGE or uh, all these meetings to, to come up with those conclusions, but um, I think probably the government wasn't left with much choice, uh, given that there wasn't they weren't presented with a plan B. Uh, they, they really had to, to say, okay, well, the experts who got maybe burnt the first time round and uh, got the modeling wrong uh, by saying that we had plenty of time to deal with it in March and then ended up having no time to deal with it. Uh, perhaps, you know, we're, we're veering on the side of caution this time and said, okay, we can't afford to get it wrong. Um, we'll cover this, but th this is just speculation. And um... I mean, but I, I think that that's quite possibly right. Um, but I think beyond speculation, what we it seems we can say for certain is that if there is a tilt, it tends to be on the side of caution. You know, and and that's been something we've been kind of pushing back on while trying to be responsible, but pushing back on because it seems like there's no political penalty for being overly cautious. Um, whilst there is a penalty for being seen to be lax or undercautious. So all these governments are kind of driving in one direction. You as an epidemiologist, 
What's your view on that? Uh, do you think they've got the kind of risk calculation wrong in a more bigger picture sense? Yes, because that both the government and the media, it must be said, are not uh, <clears throat> putting things in context. They're not um, equating the loss in GDP to loss of life and uh, longevity. Uh, they're not adding up the numbers of cancer uh, and heart attack victims that are caused. They're not the number of suicides and depressions. And so um, no one's there saying, well, as soon as you mention a lockdown, you know, there's someone's actually worked out the, the real cost there. So it's... The argument is um, it's there in the background, but it's not really up front. And, you know, and everyone is, has been in a way programmed by the uh, most of the traditional press to be looking at number of confirmed cases and you know, number of deaths. And there's no context there at all. They just see a death count and, you know, don't realize that you know, in most Novembers and Decembers, 50,000 people die uh, each month. Um, and so these numbers are actually trivial compared to the expected rates. We don't see any balance in that. So um, as an epidemiologist, and there are a number of people who think like myself, we should be taking a much broader view of this and that there should have been um, a, a balanced view where the prime minister could have said, well, you know, this is what's happening, but if I do this, uh, these other people will die, and there's a probability that this model is wrong, uh, where there's, there's no doubt that with lockdown, these people will die. It could have been a different uh, scenario, but uh, it comes back to your major point that uh, politicians and actually scientists uh, only seem to get punished um, when they uh, underestimate risk uh, and, you know, their jobs are threatened. And, we, and that's generally true across all, all society. We, we are very risk-averse without ever thinking of the consequences of these, these, uh, these restrictions on, on all of our lives. Just to go back a little bit into something you said earlier, which is that you were observing in all the different regions a, a natural slowing down and in some cases already a coming down from the peak before the lockdown two. And that you mentioned that you thought was to do with the depletion of susceptible population. This is a highly controversial area, as you all know, because people you know, are constantly fighting about the nature of immunity and whether the official estimates undercount the number of people who are really immune and all of that. What's your view on that? Is your view that you know those curves were coming down because there is larger degrees of immunity in the population by then, and it sort of began to slow down naturally? What's your take? Well, we know from other uh, epidemics that this these things naturally occur. You know, infections don't just carry on going up; they do come in waves, and we see this with colds, we see this with flu, and. Basically, they, they sort of run out of steam when uh, it, it's either infected enough people uh, and there's no one new to go to, or the people that's new to go to have an immunity to the virus. And uh, that, that's an essential part of most viral epidemics. So this wave thing is what we see. Now, why 
um, it may take over more slowly in some areas. And what's interesting is to look at is I've been following London, for example. Now, London never really took off uh, in a big way um, as other places did in the second wave. It did in the first wave. And, you know, our estimates are that, you know, probably a quarter of London. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're immune to the, a virus, and that could be an underestimate. Once you start getting that population, if you think of the people who are actually exposing themselves in London, not isolating, not shielding. These are people still going to work, still going out, were going to restaurants. Um, it's highly likely that perhaps 50% of those had some immunity, in my, in my view. And so that's why the virus was harder to take hold of there, that group. And, uh, you know, the peak never really got very high and uh, it, it would go down earlier. So, you, so, so does that mean... That, that's my, my view, is that there is this immunity for at least six months, which would have uh, protected you know, some of these populations because those very people that were immune, were, were more of them were in that group than in the ones shielding. So, I mean, is it going too far to say that your, the data you have in all these different regions, including London, which showed that slowing off and tapering before the big inter new interventions. I mean, is that proof of some kind of herd immunity effect, at least for those people who were out and about? Or could there be other explanations for it? There are, in epidemiology, there's always other explanations, unfortunately. This is 
observational data. And so, um, you know, you'd have to repeat this sort of experiment many times before you were sure what was going on. So we can say this is the most likely explanation or it's one of the explanations. Um, obviously, you know, you compare London and you compare the northwest of the country, there are big differences. So people will argue, well, it's uh, colder in Manchester or um, people are breaking the rules more in Manchester than London or um, more people were working home in, at home in London. You know, there's all kinds of micro arguments um, to do that. But, you know, my personal view is I was very surprised why we didn't have more problems in London, given the size and density of the population and, you know, the sheer numbers of people using public transport, etc. Uh, it didn't make sense unless you believed in some form of uh, prior immunity from the first wave. Mm. Yeah. So in that, in that setting. why do you think that has become so controversial? It's extraordinary the degree to which, you know, any mention of it uh, and immediately you're grouped with the kind of denying camp, which is, you know, anti-science and all the rest of it. Um, whilst, you know, surely you can believe that it's a serious disease. You can believe that we should be taking it seriously and still think that immunity is an obvious and visible and it, you might now say provable effect. I think it, it probably comes back to the government's view of, on messaging, thinking that uh, if people who had it in the first wave uh, felt they were immune, they would go crazy uh, and not obey lockdown and uh, s spread you know, disobedience around the country. So I think... My, that's my that's my personal view. Um, all these views are personal, rather than <laughs> anything due to uh, my university or Zoe. Um, so I, I think there was this general pressure to not talk about immunity because people uh, might uh, take less risk, uh, take more risks, etc. And I guess also at a personal level, if you went and said uh, that I believe there's, you know. You know, I think immunity lasts six months. Someone at five months goes and gets COVID and dies. Um, there's this sort of feeling that you'll, you'll be responsible uh, for these deaths. Again, it comes back to this argument, you know, about risk. Possibly it's part of why the conversation has got so kind of poisonous, really, because you've had this com combination of political and government concerns, such as not being caught out and not being irresponsible, with a, an atmosphere of science and lots of data and sharing information, whilst clearly not all the information is being shared and, and it's being given a tilt when it is shared. And that's what's driving a lot of people to kind of throw the whole thing out. It really feels like they've made it a lot worse for themselves. Would you agree with that? I think, they've, I think that's right. I think they've, they've staked their, their point out very early on saying, uh, you know, we don't discuss immunity because that's going to make people behave badly. We're not going to um, discuss compliance because that also might show that you know uh, things aren't effective. Um, we're not going to discuss more than uh, three symptoms um, because people don't understand that. And you may remember it was only two symptoms until... Um, the Zoe app put, uh, really uncovered the importance of loss of taste and smell. Um, 
you know, other countries have much broader um, ideas and uh, do share it more. So very early on, we've, we've, we've had these sort of rules because of the centralization of the approach, um, which is different in other countries that have had much more regional ones where they've allowed different health authorities to work out things differently. We've had this very much top-down approach and clear decision-making, uh, the comms teams, you know, deciding what can be said and what cannot be said. And, um, you know, also in increasing relatively the level of fear so that uh, people are complying with the, the rules. And uh, obviously you know, that's been seen as a, important for public health that people do behave the rules, don't go crazy, but at the same time, uh, for many people, this fear element is stopping them going to their local hospital and they're, they're going to die at home because of it. So, um, and, and uh, with this centralised approach, it's very hard to change that, uh, that main dogma. The big news yesterday was the vaccine trial. Um, clearly there's now a hope someone was on the radio saying that we might be back to normal in the spring. Uh, this is now, Boris Johnson gave a press conference, this is the new kind of narrative, I suppose, which is that it's worth persisting with these draconian lockdowns and everything because the end is now in sight, vaccine is around the corner. Um, what's your view on that plan? I think it's great to have some optimism. So we have a vaccine that looks like it may work, which means that if that one doesn't, others probably will. Um, I think it's dangerous to think that this will be actually working for us in the spring. Um, we don't know how long it lasts. We don't know if it works in old people, um, all kinds of caveats, and we'll have to carry around minus 80 freezers with us. Um, and the other worry, I think, is that they might just use that carrot to keep us locked down for uh, the next three months uh, without really any great rationale if we you know, don't present a real case uh, to counteract the, the, the real lockdown um, group to say, you know what, uh, this is for the reasons we've been discussing, you know, we didn't need to lock down this time. We should, uh, it has uh, a far worse harm than benefit. So, but I think that is a real danger now that everyone will say, okay, well, I've only got to wait another four months. Um, I can just, you know, stay at home for four months. I can do that. Uh, and there's no, we don't know it's going to be four months. It could well be uh, more likely is probably by the end of the year. And we'll be in this, this false limbo land doing nothing. So I still think we do need a plan to get back to normal to accept that uh, we're going to have uh, continued infections, continued deaths, really, for the rest of the year, and come up with a plan about how we, we deal with that as a country. And, and, and it, it's got to be some form of consensus. We can't just have these opposing groups all the time, because um, most people are still more in the lockdown camp than the uh, freedom camp. I think if you did population surveys, partly because of the information they've been given. On the vaccine question, um, you know, we've talked about the controversy around herd immunity. I suspect that is nothing compared to the controversy around the vaccine that is about to come. Um, you know, 
the whole question of whether it is sort of anti-vax to be hesitant about taking it, um, who should have to take it, who should anyone have to take it. How do you think, uh, what is a responsible approach when it comes to the vaccine? Should it be offered to vulnerable groups only? Should everybody be offered it? How would you navigate that? Well, partly it's going to be dictated by the supply of it. Um, and certainly the number one group to sort out are the, are the vulnerable. Because at least if you cover them and their carers, you could effectively shield them pretty well. And everyone, you know, could just put up with the virus. And um, apart from some cases of long COVID, we'd be, you know, we could cope uh, as a country and, and get economically back to normal. Um, so definitely start with that group. Um, and I think, yeah, I, mean, I think you try a, a voluntary approach. So you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't mandate it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't force anyone to take it. I'd want to know more about it first because a lot of these vaccines uh, are very novel. Um, I think if they were exactly like the flu vaccines and things, you could mandate it. I wouldn't have a problem with that. I think uh, in some cases you, you you do need to do that. Um, but uh, I'd want to know more about, you know, the risks people are taking. And I think people wouldn't necessarily accept that. And one thing we're, we're thinking of doing in the app is actually adding a, a vaccine function to it so people could actually take the vaccine and report side effects long term uh, to feel safer about doing it themselves. That's going to be very interesting. So you're going to have you can have data from people who've taken the vaccine. What would you say to people who say, well, I think I'll hang back, thanks, and I'll, I'll wait a few more months and check that it's all right before I take it? Um, well, I would understand their concerns. Um, and uh, depending on what their job was, uh, you know, if they're a healthcare worker, they wouldn't have a choice. They'd have to uh, have the vaccine, you know, I'm a doctor, you know, there's certain things we have to have. We know have to get our hepatitis boosters and uh, all our vaccinations up to scratch. So I think uh, we've got to be um, pragmatic about it. Uh, you know, it's fairly easy for people to delay being vaccinated if they're worried. Uh, generally, those people, you know, will, will have problems with the vaccination anyway, uh, psychologically. So, um, I, again... I think a soft a carrot approach rather than a stick it would be the way to go forward. But we had, you know, just as an aside, you know, of our, we emailed I think, two million people on the app and one million signed up for vaccine trials, um, experimental ones. So I, I think, uh, whereas there, you know, there are a few anti-vaxxers, there's the vast majority of the population that are pretty keen to take it, and even if it has risks. I mean, probably the kinds of people who would be hesitant about taking a vaccine would also be hesitant about joining a kind of health logging community, possibly. Um, yes, you, no, exactly. I, I think the conspiracy theorists, etc., would would, mm. would stay away from uh, our app as well. Do you think there's any, as a doctor, do you think there's any medical case for giving the vaccination to under 40-year-olds? Under 40, uh, probably yes. I mean... Under 18s, probably not. Um, we are seeing some cases of long COVID in, in people in their 20s. 
Um, it obviously increases with age, but there are some cases. So med medically, I'd have to say yes. But uh, in young children, uh, it's it would, it, they'd be the last people I, I would be vaccinating. Well, it's going to be really interesting to see how these next few months play out. And I think your platform is really important because it enables people collectively to prove things that otherwise might be denied by official government statistics. Yeah, and no, I think so. And, and uh, we, you know, obviously our, ours costs about £2 million a year. Um, track and Trace, is they're spending about £12 billion. And um, we think the other ONS survey is, you know, perhaps half a billion. Uh, so we are competing against uh, the big guys. Uh, so we're not going to be the biggest, but we are trying to be the most flexible and the one that gives people the results fastest. And now you can get the whole report into your app if you log every day, seeing exactly what the government's being sent in real time. So that's always going to be our ethos is to get the data out there and, and get it shared and, and get people you know, to become experts in this area themselves so they can uh, make that their own judgments on these are very you know, these are all very difficult issues anyway but um, I think just raising the level of uh, data and education is really really important at the moment. Professor Tim Spector thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks again to Tim Spector from King's College London for telling us all about his app. It's going to be fascinating to see how that all develops in the coming months. Don't forget you can watch all of our podcast interviews on our YouTube channel. Find us under Unheard and make sure to subscribe for all the latest. Thanks for joining. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.